This is an ABC podcast. The president's actions have seriously violated the Constitution. The president has engaged in abuse of power, undermining our national security and jeopardizing the integrity of our elections. His actions are in defiance of the vision of our founders and the oath of office that he takes. Today, I am asking our chairman to proceed with articles of impeachment. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives and the most powerful woman in US politics. Since the presidential election in 2016, she has been the thorn in the side of the Trump administration, demanding accountability at every turn and now leading the push to impeach the president. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on RN Summer. Nancy Pelosi was born in Baltimore in 1940 into a large Italian family. She was the youngest, the only girl, and it was a family steeped in politics, democratic politics. When I was born, my father was in Congress. He represented Maryland. Then when I was in first grade, he became the mayor of Baltimore. So it was really the only life we knew. Everyone calls her a San Francisco liberal, which is true. But in fact, she is a Baltimore Paul, a big city politician. Elaine Povich, Washington journalist and the author of Nancy Pelosi, a biography. Her father was the mayor of Baltimore, also served in the House of Representatives. Her brother was also mayor of Baltimore. And from the time she was 13, she played a behind-the-scenes role in the D'Alessandro family. Her father was Tommy D'Alessandro, a big Italian family in Baltimore. She ran what was called the favor file for him. People would come to their house when he was mayor looking either for favors or for things to do or for some help with something, and she would keep track of everyone he helped and what he did for them. And then when it came time for election, she would get on those people to help uh, with the re-election fight and any kind of other city organizations that she was working on. And she always played that role. As a matter of fact, everyone in the family had that favor file role until Nancy, and she was the youngest. She had five brothers, only girl. When Nancy got the job, she got to be so good at it that the rest of the family, all of her brothers said, fine, fine, you can have it all yours. It's your job from here on out. And it was. And what was Baltimore politics like in the 1940s and 50s in America? It was big machine, what they called machine politics, not in a bad way, but the organization was everything. The political organization was everything. You had friends and you had precinct captains and the captains had lieutenants and the lieutenants had sergeants and you organized, 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 and on election day, you made sure that everybody turned out where they were supposed to be, and if Joe Schmo didn't show up at the polls, there would be a knock on his door saying, where's Joe? We need his vote, because it was that well organized. And she learned that organization literally at her father's knee and was always a great organizer and a terrific vote counter. She learned that from her father as well, is to always, always count your votes. And she did actually study politics at university. Do we know if she had ambitions at that time to perhaps follow in the family career and get involved in politics? I think she was 
interested in it from the vantage point of where she'd always been, which was the organizer and the envelope stuffer and the worker. She was quite shy in a way compared to the rest of her boisterous family. Not a very good public speaker, although she did speak in college and did well there. But truly, when she met Paul Pelosi, the very traditional wife and mother type role was what she found herself knowingly going into. And any kind of other political ambitions aside from volunteer work were non-existent as far as I could tell at that point. I was never raised in a way that I would be running for public office. It didn't interest me. When I graduated from college, I got married, had five children in six years. So that was my life. She was in her early 20s during the 1960s, and this was a time of quite radical change. Do you have a sense that she was influenced by the women's movement or civil rights movement, the the sort of, I guess, the whole multitude of changes that were happening in the United States at that time? If you ask her, she will tell you that she was way too busy raising children. And in a way, I believe her because she had five children in six years. Okay, so she was either pregnant, giving birth, or raising infants through much of of that time. And it was pretty hard to be involved. That is not to say that she wasn't aware of what was going on around her. Particularly in San Francisco at that time, it was impossible to ignore what was going on. But she was not at all a part of it. She was rearing children who went to Catholic schools, and she was taking them to the park and hanging out with other mothers. She was stuffing envelopes and volunteering and walking door to door, mostly with her children being dragged along, either in a stroller or by the hand. And she was aware of it. And I think somewhere in the back of her head, maybe, but not really at the forefront at all. Not at all. Pelosi, personally, is very conservative in that she, she's a devout Catholic. She never misses Mass. Mark Sandelow, former Washington correspondent and the author of Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi's Life, Times and Rise to Power. This is a woman who I very much doubt went out to Golden Gate Park in San Francisco to hear the Grateful Dead play in 1969, which they were doing the year she moved there. And during that period when she first arrived in San Francisco, did she get involved in politics then or did that come later? It wasn't long until she started to try to raise money for local politicians. She had this in her blood. She knew about politics. So she would dabble in different sorts of political things, but nothing big until her kids were just a little bit older. And then she started to raise bigger and bigger money. They lived in a comfortable neighborhood in San Francisco. She knew how to do this. And she started raising money for more and more prominent politicians. And I see the need to turn this country around. We've made a Faustian bargain with ourselves to keep the gas guzzlers moving down the freeways. Pretty clearly, Jerry Brown is a young man whose ambitions go considerably beyond Tuesday's California primary. And it was actually Jerry Brown who just left being governor of California for many years, who ran for president back in the 70s. And she was the one who said, I know how to win in the state of Maryland. That's where I'm from. That's where Baltimore is. And she took him to Maryland. She helped him win the Maryland primary, which was probably the peak of Jerry Brown's national profile, and convinced her that this is something that she can do on a big scale. She was also, by the time her youngest kids were in high school, she was already chair of the California Democratic Party. 
that is not a small job. That is an intense political job. It's not elected office, but, you know, her kids would talk about how they'd pull up at stop signs or stop lights and her mother would have a box of envelopes and they'd be licking the envelopes because you don't want to waste time at a red light. So she was constantly on the move. She's a woman with remarkable energy. When and why did Nancy Pelosi, this conservative Italian mother of five, move from being an organiser and fundraiser to actually standing for office? Well, this was a decision that was thrust upon her. As I said, she was friends with Phil Burton, a very powerful California congressman. He unfortunately died in office. His wife, Sala, took the job, was the first appointed to it, and then elected to the seat. Some years later, she too became very, very ill. And on her deathbed, she talked to her friend Nancy, who had come to visit. And she said, Nancy, I think you should run for my seat. I want you to run for my seat. And Pelosi was quite taken aback. She was just, didn't know what to do. I had volunteered in politics for a number of years. I went to my youngest daughter, who would be a senior in high school, Alexandra. I said, Alexandra, mommy has a chance to run for Congress. If it's okay with you, I'll t- I don't know if I'll win, but I'll take a chance and run. To which she said, mother, get a life. <laughs> the first time Pelosi ran for office, she was seen as the more conventional, more moderate or conservative candidate. She was what they called at the time a party girl, which was you know, intended perhaps as a little bit of an insult, saying that she goes to parties all the time. But mostly what they meant was she was a Democratic Party operative. She was chairman of the California Democratic Party. She was involved in Democratic events. And, you know, the more liberal and at that point emerging gay political voice in San Francisco voted for somebody else. It was a very, very close election. That was back in 1987. She has not had a close election since. How many women were there in the House of Representatives when she was elected? Pelosi was not the first woman in Congress. I mean, you have to go back almost 100 years to find the first woman in Congress. But most of the women who were elected to office in the United States, not all of them, most of them, were the wives of prominent politicians who the husband would die and they would run for their seat and they were already well known. There were women in Congress, but women were not seen as serious politicians in the same way until really the last couple decades in American politics. There was a woman who preceded Pelosi in Congress by, you know, a good 15 years by the name of Pat Schroeder. When she first sat down at a committee that the chairman did not want her on, Pat Schroeder and an African-American and the chairman of the committee didn't like blacks, didn't like women. And he said, I may no longer be able to control who sits in my committee, but I do control the chairs on the dais. And he put out one chair for the two of them to literally sit cheek to cheek for the entire meeting. And no one stood up to express their outrage. There were no women in leadership. There were no women in any prominent positions in Congress, for that matter, in the executive branch either. So Pelosi was a, you know, very much a groundbreaker. So when she got to the House, I mean, in essence, she was 47, which is quite old for someone <laughs> to go to the House. But she wasn't really a novice because she knew a significant number of the people, members in the House. And I'm wondering, was she able to sort of hit the ground running? Yes. At that time, freshman members, particularly those who had uh, been elected in a special election, were told to be, you know, seen and not heard. And it was virtually unheard of for a freshman to make 
a speech. But right after she got sworn in, she looked at the then speaker, a man named Jim Wright, an old guy from Texas, and said that she would like to say something. And he sort of said, well, okay. So she gave her first speech. It was very short. It was like a minute and a half in which she praised the gay community and uh, talked about how she got elected and how she would be a voice for the people of San Francisco. And some of the old Pauls were a little taken aback that she used her first speech to talk about the gay community and AIDS, which was not something that was talked about quite openly back then as it is now. And she stood up there and she did it. And she got away with it because everybody knew who she was. And the one thing she did know was that befriending powerful people was a, was a good idea. And she got to know the speaker and she got to know the the more senior members of the House and got herself appointed to good committees, not initially, but eventually she got appointed to the Appropriations Committee, very powerful committee that basically hands out all the money in the federal government one way or the other. So other members are always coming to you looking for things. Oh, they want money for this and money for that. And you're in a position to either say yay or nay. That automatically gives you a little bit more power. And she knew how to do that. Pelosi became much more prominent nationally after the Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing, you know, back at the end of the 80s. This was at first an issue because there was an awful lot of Chinese Americans in San Francisco. And it started out with legislation she sponsored, which would have allowed Chinese exchange students in San Francisco not to be forced to go home when their visas expired because they were worried about persecution. The president at the time, George H.W. Bush vetoed that legislation, and the Congress overrode his veto. That was a big victory, and complaining about human rights in China became a huge cause for her. And, you know, she started to go on national television shows. She started to become the leader of this movement. She worked with both liberals and conservatives who were concerned about this issue. So this was the issue that really broke her out of her parochial position. This is Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. We're looking at Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and how it is she rose to be the most powerful woman in US politics. Well, she had one inherent advantage in that she came from a large delegation and they did a lot of things together. So she had that advantage. She had the advantage of knowing some of the leadership, knowing how to do it. And as I say, the Appropriations Committee was a place where she also began to understand how to trade favors and have people owe her things. It was at this time when she also began to take advantage of the Women's Caucus and to do things with the women in the House, of which there were, you know, not that many back then, but they were recognizable and were beginning to move in the corridors of power. And together, they started having lunches and dinners and became a, a bit of a force in and of themselves. When did she start to get noticed as someone who could rise up in the ranks of the House in the Democratic Party? She noticed herself. <laughs> Let me explain. She was not noticed as a leader. First of all, leaders in the House of Representatives up to that point had all been men. So we're going to just like ignore the other half of the equation and like we wouldn't think about her for leadership. And remember I talked about all those women. Well, she had, she had a dinner one night in, in her house and she invited about 20 women in the House of Representatives and said, 
I'm thinking about running for a leadership post. What do you think? And you know, they went around the table, and most of the, of the people and most of the women in the room said, wow, that's a great idea, but nobody's ever done that before. How are you going to do that? And at that point, she started organizing, and she started with that core of supporters, and she started reaching out to other members of the House. She was running for the position of whip, which was the number three spot, and she started running. There were several other people who were running, all male, and she kind of said, hey, it's time. We have a fresh face, and it's time that we in the Democratic Party actually put a woman up front. She got some support for that. That's when she really started doing a lot of fundraising. That's when she started going to members' districts and talking to people and appearing at fundraisers and talking about how we need new leadership. In 2001, Pelosi was elected the House Minority Whip the first woman in U.S. history to hold that post. Matthew Green is Professor of Politics at the Catholic University of America and the author of The Speaker of the House, A Study of Leadership. Well, there was a few issues that she took strong positions on and demonstrated that she could be very effective, particularly against then-President George W. Bush, who was a Republican, and in the early 2000s. And so after the 2004 election, Bush was reelected. One of his top agenda items was to privatize Social Security, our financial assistance for the elderly. And Pelosi simply said, no, we're not going to support that in the House of Representatives. We're the minority, but you're going to need our votes if you can't get Republicans behind you. And on issues like that, she demonstrated that she wasn't afraid to challenge the president of the opposite party and work to keep her party unified. Those kinds of issues, she developed a strong reputation for being an effective leader, but she also demonstrated some very critical skills as whip and as minority leader. One of them was fundraising, which is in today's Congress an absolutely essential skill if you want to move up the leadership ladder. She was able to raise a large amount of money for members of her party, and she was a tireless fundraiser. And stories about her flying from Washington, D.C. all the way to Hawaii to do a fundraiser, then turn right around and come right back again. If any member needed help from her for any reason, she was there. And doing things like that, those are the kinds of skills that she demonstrated would make her an effective speaker. One of the issues she took a very strong stand on was the war in Iraq, which she opposed even when many other Democrats supported it. After the first Gulf War in the early 1990s, a lot of Democrats felt that their opposition made them look weak. So when George W. Bush decided to attack Iraq, a lot of prominent Democrats, Hillary Clinton, for example, said that they were not against it. You know, they would support the president. And when President Bush announced he was attacking Iraq, there were Democrats standing with him at the White House supporting this. Nancy Pelosi never believed this. She never thought it made sense for the United States to attack Iraq. Pelosi's position on Iraq was a big break from other Democratic leaders and was seen by many to be a political gamble that wasn't worth it. Democrats are going to be branded as they have since the Vietnam War as weak on national defense, and she was urged not to take up this fight. But she ended up convincing a majority of the Democrats in the House of Representatives to oppose the war in Iraq. So while Congress approved what George W. Bush did, he did it with some Democrats, but almost all Republicans. And Pelosi doing that 
endeared her to the liberal base and showed that she could really lead Democrats and keep them united in a way that was that was surprising. Then, in the 2006 midterm elections, the Democrats took control of the House of Representatives, and Pelosi was unanimously chosen as the first ever woman Speaker of the House. Pelosi of the state of California is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives for the 110th Congress. It was stunning. I had covered the House of Representatives for a a number of years up to that point, and of course I'd never seen a woman in that chair, and just the thought that that a woman would do it was was quite stunning. And when she gave the speech, her first speech as speaker, and she invited her children and her grandchildren and the children and grandchildren of other members to surround her on the podium, it was quite a moment. Was she different from the male speakers that had come before? Well, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. I mean, she wielded power pretty uh, pretty good. She did it like the boys, and she uh, kept the troops in line most of the time. Even better than the boys, I would say. She was tough. She did not suffer dissent. If you were a Democrat and you didn't vote with her on a bill— she has a lot of power. She can put you on committees. She can distribute money for the next election. And she would threaten more than she carried it out. But occasionally there were people who had opposed her in the past and they found themselves on the opposite end of her campaigning. But she's been very skilled at either through holding a carrot or a stick, making sure that most people stick together on the Democratic side. And that's made the Democrats far more effective than before. She was the one who almost single-handedly managed to save Obamacare, which President Obama had made his signature issue, and it was dying. It was on life support. It was not getting the support it needed. And she kind of stiffened the spine of President Obama and the other Democrats, and by God, they did it. So there's a few important skills or tactics, I guess is a better way of putting it, that Pelosi used. One of them was to adjust legislation accordingly. So if you have a bill, say, that some members in your party object to, you sit down with them and say, well, what is it about it you don't like? And what could we do to change it that would make you happy? While at the same time, not changing it in such a way that those who already like the bill decide they don't want to support it anymore. So there's some legislative adjusting that has to happen and happens certainly with Obamacare. Part of it is you can make promises for future legislative action. So if a member of Congress says, well, I like the bill, but I wish we would do X, you can say, well, we could do X in a separate bill. So we'll have a separate vote. Now, that bill may not become law, but you are at least acknowledging their concerns and meeting them in some way. And then some of it is, frankly, just persuasion just sitting down and talking to members of Congress. And if they say, look, I don't like the bill, you can say things like, look, I know you don't like it, but if you vote for it, I know your district, it's not going to cost you re-election. Or you can say, look, this is the president's number one priority. The Affordable Care Act is the most important thing. If we don't pass this, our party is going to be looked at as a total failure. Do you really want the president to be calling you up and saying, you ruined my presidency? If Nancy Pelosi was not speaker during President Obama's first term, it's very unlikely that the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, would have passed. President Obama has acknowledged, you know, looking back, that were Pelosi not speaker at that point, had she not been keeping Democrats together, that piece of legislation would not have happened. 
Now, it had a backlash, and you can argue that the success of Obamacare and passing Obamacare gave the Republican Party their biggest rocking point. And in fact, they defeated the Democrats in the next election, and she lost her speakership because the Republicans took over the House. Did members blame Pelosi for that loss? Yes. They said it was time for somebody else to become the minority leader and that she should just step aside. To which she said, no, thank you, I'm going to stay. But she decided then and there that she was going to work once again to try to win the majority back and went back to work doing the things that she does, raising the money, speaking out, going places, recruiting, just put her head down and went back to work. At the end of 2018, the Democrats regained control of the House of Representatives. But there were many members who didn't want Pelosi to regain the speakership. So now you have Pelosi, who, you know, 10 years ago was this groundbreaking woman, but she's been in politics now for, for many, many years. And she, in many ways, represents the old guard. And people thought it's time to move on. I mean, the woman's approaching her 80s, and I mean, she's old enough to be some of the new members of Congress, not parents. She's old enough to be their grandparent. I think she stays in the fight because she's convinced that no one else can do it better than she is. And if there were another woman in the U.S. Congress right now who Pelosi thought could take over and raise the money she does and lead the party the way she does, she'd much more likely step down. You got to remember, when she goes to the White House and has high-level meetings with President Trump and other leaders of Congress, she's the only woman in the room. And in fact, she's the only woman who's ever been in that room because there's never been a woman, either president, vice president, or anybody who's been a top level of Congress like her before. And she takes that very, very seriously. Nancy, would you like to say something? Well, thank you, Mr. President, for the opportunity to meet with you uh, so that we can work together in a bipartisan way. If we don't get what we want, one way or the other, whether it's through you, through a military, through anything you want to call, I will shut down the government. Okay, absolutely. Fair enough. And we I am disagree. proud, and I'll we tell disagree. you what, I am proud to shut down the government for border security. She stood up to him, and he started talking off the top of his head, and he said a few kind of mean things to her, and she shot back and said, Mr. President, don't tell me what power I have in the House of Representatives. She kind of got the best of him in the meeting. And I think at that moment, she decided that this was someone that she could take on and could do battle with and probably pretty successfully. So long story short, they shut the government down for 35 days. In the end, the president agreed to open it back up and not get what he wanted in terms of a border wall on the Mexican border. And she won hands down. And the key to that was holding the Democrats together. There were some Democrats who said, oh, gosh, give them the money. You know, we don't want to shut the government down anymore. We'll get blamed for it. Okay, the wall, fine, whatever. She said, no, I'm not doing it. And part of it was that she had had experience with, with shutdowns before, and she knew that it's very difficult for the president to escape blame because, you know, they're the ones in the front. Besides which, in, in President Trump's case, he'd stood up and said, yep, I'll take the mantle. Go ahead. Give it to me. She is now at this moment perceived as a very savvy, wily, significant leader at this very moment. She looks pretty good. 
for people observing Congress, whether you're a journalist or whether you're watching on TV, she comes across as stiff and somewhat regimented. She's not terribly articulate in interviews or on television. And I think people look at her and they see this liberal politician from San Francisco who's, you know, touch a high society, very well dressed, not speaking particularly eloquently about liberal causes, and they underestimate her. If they were to see her father, who was a you know, short Italian guy with a fedora and a handkerchief, he's the American stereotype of behind closed doors and smoke-filled rooms, operating and figuring out how to move things behind the public scene. That's Nancy Pelosi. But people have never seen a woman in that role before, and they just assume that her outward persona is who she is. I think that Republicans in Washington don't underestimate her. It's very likely that Donald Trump did. Mark Sandelow, author of Madam Speaker. My other guests, Elaine Povich, Washington journalist and the author of Nancy Pelosi, a biography, and Professor Matthew Green. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.